We're tackling April Fool's Day in this hour. Steve just sent us a good good one. Would open up stuffed Oreo cookies, put some toothpaste inside, and put them in the staff room at work. Most of them got eaten. Just goes to show you. <laughs> That's a good one. I got this from the kids show, Arthur. Well, inspiration is a good thing. So we've been looking into why we're gullible. And now we want to take you on a bit of a journey into what makes a good prank. Here's one of the most famous April Fool's jokes or segments. Way back in 1957, the BBC show Panorama, which is a very serious show, aired a segment on a bumper spaghetti crop in Switzerland. Here's what it sounds like. The past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavor and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. So this was a prank the BBC played back in 1957. And of course, people went wild because they thought it might be true. And therein lies the beauty of a great prank. It has to be believable. It has to come from somewhere that you might not necessarily expect, or at least be funny. So that is one of the most famous of all time. Uh, Let me know if you have any good ones. 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. We're talking April Fool's tonight. Well, with me now is Steve Gimbel. He's a professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania and author of Isn't That Clever? A Philosophical Account of Humor and Comedy. Steve Gimbel, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so it's always, I mean, I think what one, you know, April Fool's is probably that one time of the year where what is funny to some is not funny to all. Um, and there is sort of a fine line between funny and not. So what is the key in, in all the research you've done? What is the key to a good gag or a good joke? <laughs> well, I, I think we first have to distinguish, and I'm a, a philosopher, we love to draw distinctions between practical jokes and verbal jokes. So if we're talking about verbal jokes, we can, again, draw another distinction between the quality of the joke itself and the delivery of the joke, right? Because we could have a, a good joke poorly told. So there are different virtues of uh, the intrinsic properties of the joke and then of the delivery of the joke. Equal parts, I imagine, both equally important because I've heard many a, a good joke delivered badly and many a bad joke delivered quite well over the years. Um, Indeed. So if we move to the sort of the April Fool's side of things, I suppose the same the same applies. It has to be clever and well executed. Well, execution is definitely a key in the case of a practical joke. So what's interesting is with verbal jokes, we have so many different reasons why we might tell them. So the, the standard, of course, is just to, to get laughs, to generate mirth. But I'm a teacher, so sometimes I'll tell jokes in the classroom just to, to change the, the feel of the environment, to create a, a more casual uh, environment. Other times we could tell jokes to impress people or to insult people. But with practical jokes, there's generally just one reason, and it's to catch somebody unaware. And so there is definitely uh, a difference in approach when you're talking about telling a joke to your friends as opposed to playing a joke on your friends. 
And of course, on April Fool's Day, everyone is kind of expecting it. So you have to be pretty, you have to be pretty on your game to to get to get one over on people. So with that being said, what would be the key then on April the 1st to to delivering a good practical joke? Do you the think key in your, in your a estimation? really good practical joke is it has to be right on the edge of believability. So in order to really get your mark. What you have to do is set up something that's slightly unusual, but not so unusual that it's noticed. Now, I will admit I had one go awry <laughs> a number <laughs> of years all. ago. Haven't we all? <laughs> it was for precisely the reason you're saying is I figured it, it's April Fool's. Everyone will be expecting it. So I, you know, when I was a, a junior faculty member, untenured, <laughs> I, on April Fool's, sent an email to my department chair telling her that I had gotten a uh, job offer from a more prestigious institution, uh, one located in an urban area, and that, you know, my wife wasn't sure she wanted to relocate the family, but I just wanted to let you know. Now, I'm a well-known joker. It was April 1st. So I thought along the lines that you mentioned that they would see through it immediately. Well, I showed up to teach class and the entire department was in an uproar. They believed it. And I, I guess it's that fine line. You should, I guess you should be flattered. They all believe it. Exactly. That's a good sign. But sometimes a little too believable, right? A little too believable. Exactly. Now, fortunately, you know, they had a sense of humor about it. I went and taught my class, came back to my office, and there on my phone was a message from uh, our provost saying, we heard that you had a job offer elsewhere. We highly suggest you take it. So in the end, they bought into it. Any good ones? Any really successful ones to talk about? Well, I mean, I think the key to success, and I, I'll, I'll think of a couple, I'm sure, as, as we're talking, is the sort of reciprocity. So in, in, in the story I just told, what was fun about it was that the mark, in this case, my colleagues in the department, I knew would have a sense of humor about it. And there was a sense of reciprocity. They felt like they could try to pull a joke on me. When there's a sense of uh, a power imbalance, playing jokes can be a bit awkward. So if, if you're playing a joke on someone with less power, so I will frequently on uh, April 1st walk into the classroom and go through the motions as if we're having a pop quiz. <laughs> sure they now, appreciate that exactly the the wonderful thing is it works every time uh but you know you could ask is it fair given that i were over these people and what i'm doing is abusing that power for a laugh uh so you know when you're talking about someone you don't know well or someone over whom you're an authority i think then we ought to Think twice about the joke, or at least be careful. I certainly don't want to say that there ought not be jokes played where there's power imbalances, but you always have to be aware that it doesn't always look the same to them as it looks to you. Yeah, you really, I guess you really have to know your audience, which is true of just about any joke. That's absolutely uh, Know your audience. Uh, we've been talking a lot about 
jokes and the impact of jokes this week, haven't we? After the Oscars <laughs> and so on. Um, one of the, th- I mean, I've always found the, one of the, the truisms I always felt is, you know, don't really April fools at work is probably not always, unless you know your crowd, April fools at work is probably a pretty, pretty sketchy idea, unless it's very innocent, unless it's very clever and very innocent. I think that's perfectly good advice. One of the things I'm curious about, you know, who's become really good at April Fool's obviously is, is the corporate world, the marketers, because of course they are, that's what they do for right. a living. But I've been interested just in, uh, about what you think of sort of the fact that April Fool's has been kind of co-opted from being, you know, putting water on someone's seat in grade school to sort of a high level marketing tactic now where you see some really clever stuff come out of corporations these days. They are legitimately funny things. It is. And what's fascinating is that marketing is by its very nature, rhetorical. That is, the whole purpose of marketing is to affect what you think. And so these are people who have invested huge amounts of money into psychological research, into figuring out how to affect your brain, how to get you to believe something that you hadn't believed before the commercial. And now they're using it, you know, that very manipulative technology that they usually use in order to make a buck in order to get a laugh. Now, you know, certainly a a well-played corporate uh, gag will result in lots of uh, people talking about it. And that's really what they want. So I, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's that, that, that feeling of being manipulated, but if you're going to do it, at least get a laugh out of me. Yeah, one of the things that I, I I was looking up a Pennsylvania example, knowing where you are, and of course the big one was back in '96 when Taco Bell announced they were going to buy the Liberty Bell and rename it the Taco <laughs> Liberty Bell. <laughs> that was yes, <laughs> which you know in America everything's for sale, so again it doesn't seem that absurd. Yeah, a couple of good Canadian ones too. WestJet, uh, an airline here, tends to come up with some good ones. I think back they had. Uh, they had started, they put out something on April Fool's Day about a new automated food cart called Ralph, which was good. And, <laughs> and then and then charging passengers an extra 12 bucks to use uh, sleeper cabins, which ended up being the overhead bins, right? So it's, it is a good day. Do you think it's, do you think it taints it at all though, when, when there is that sort of corporate appeal to it? Well, I think that's a fair question. And again, I think it, it depends how clever it is. I think, and that's uh, something I've long held is that if a joke is really clever, you could probably get away with something you usually can't get away with. Any parting advice for, uh, for people out there thinking of thinking who are sitting there tonight thinking, Hmm, I have this great plan for tomorrow. This is going to land super well. I'm going to be a hero either with amongst my friends within my family or, uh, at work, uh, any, any last words of caution for, or, or advice for people, uh, embarking on their prank for tomorrow. Well, if it doesn't work, at least you'll have a really great story to tell in the unemployment line. <laughs> it worked for you. You were okay. You were okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, that, that was, yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I don't know if I would try that one telling, uh, telling my boss I had gotten offered a better job because I really would worry about, about the consequences. <laughs> Do you remember back at all? I was trying to remember my, even just before we started, I was trying to remember back to my first April Fool's uh, stuff. And I grew up in Quebec, so it was actually called Poisson d'Avril, which is the fish ah. of April, right? The old, the old word. Right. And all I can remember were the bad ones, like having people slap things on your back or put water in your seat. Or like it was all a bit, it was all <laughs> a bit kind of not cruel, but just a bit, I don't know, uh, 
interesting, but kind of, but never particularly funny. Well, I grew up with with a, a wonderful bunch of jokers. And so there were constant practical jokes. But one April Fool's, I'll never forget a friend of mine coming into school to find all of the numbers on his locker having been painted out black. <laughs> <laughs> the clever ones, yeah. It's, sometimes it's just the smallest ones that are the most clever. Uh, so do you have any plans? I, you, I won't make you give them away, but <clears throat> any plans for tomorrow morning? Oh, Always. I, I have two kids who are away at college, so they'll receive texts. <laughs> I won't ask. Steve Gimbel, thank you so much for your time tonight, and uh, good luck with your pranks tomorrow. I hope they land as you hope they land. <laughs> thank you.